Well, we were talking about the church at Ephesus here in chapter 2, and um, <clears throat> we talked about how that perhaps we began with this particular church here in the book of Revelation because it was uh, probably the best-known church as far as the church was concerned, as far as Christianity was concerned. It also was a very famous city at this time, and this is perhaps why John started with it. And we talked about how in each one of these letters to these churches um, that there was a pattern that's going to be followed, how that first there's a description of Jesus, uh, there's a, a, a commendation, a condemnation, and then an exhortation, and then an admonition to all to pay attention to what has been written, and then finally it will close with a promise. And of course, this church was commended because of their works and their labor and their patience, and how that false teachers had come into their church, and they had tried them and called them liars, and how that they continued to endure and work hard. This was a hard-working church. It was doing great works. It was working hard. It was getting rid of false teachers and, and setting forth the doctrine of Jesus Christ. But then, as we found out last week, there was something that Jesus had against this church. He said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Have left your first love. Literally in the Greek is, you do not love as you did at first. And that kind of explains what Jesus is saying here. Something has changed. And I think the thing that we need to understand, especially when it comes to churches, that one of the things that Jesus specifically looks at and is the true measure of a church is its love. How does a church love? Now, I don't say that to say that it's not important to be involved in good works. Jesus commended the church for that. It's not important uh, to... I'm not saying it's not important to expose false doctrine and stand for the truth. Jesus commended them for that. But he also said that if it's not based upon love, then you're just spinning your wheels. The Apostle Paul had something to say about that. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He says, though I speak of the sound, speak like angels. If I don't have love, what does he say? If I do all kinds of great works, but if I don't have love, it's worthless. Even if I give my body to be burned, if it's not based upon love, it's worthless. So with that in mind, what do you think, and we, we got into this just a little bit the other night, but what was, what was going on here? What was he wanting them to think about? I mean, from the outside looking at this church, this is a church that we would want to be a member of. First of all, it's a famous church. It's got a long heritage of some amazing preachers. And Jesus says, man, you, you're the hardest working church I've ever come across. And you've knocked out the false teachers. You won't put up with them. So what is going on here? From the outside, this looks like a super church. So what's wrong? Okay. Could possibly be that. Keep in mind everything that we're throwing out here, it doesn't tell us what the problem was. It just says you don't love like you did at the beginning. We don't know if it's because they weren't loving one another like each other should or they weren't loving God like they should. Something was missing that had been there before. Uh, Jamie, did you? 
Absolutely. Is it possible to have a perfect worship, worship service as far as doctrine is concerned and it still be wrong? Is it possible to um, lead a prayer and the prayer be one that people who are listening to it saying, man, that guy knows how to pray and it still be wrong? Um, could it be that you have a big, huge fellowship meal and, and just have everybody in the whole church stay and it's got some of the best food you've ever eaten and could that still be a worthless time? If you're not doing what God wants you to do as far as the heart is concerned in any of those things, uh, if the heart's not right, then it's vain worship. It's vain everything. Um, the number one thing that Jesus said when he was asked what's the most important law and uh, the most important commandment, he said it all hangs on these two pegs, both the law and the prophets, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And so maybe that's what's going on here. Boy, and it came to doctrine. Boy, they could, they could debate with the rest of them. But they probably sent more souls to hell than they did to heaven because they won the argument but lost the soul. You see how that can happen? And like I said, we don't know exactly what was going on here, but they did not love like they did at the first. And so he tells them in verse uh, 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Uh, somebody who has a different uh, translation. Uh, read what you've got. Remember, therefore, from what? The height from which you had fallen. Anybody got anything else? All right, consider how far you have fallen. Take a look back. When he tells you to remember, what are you supposed to remember? Well, you're supposed to remember where you used to be and where you are now. Now, once again, from the measuring stick standpoint, Jesus says, wow, look at everything you've done. Look at all the, the problems you have solved. Look at the false teachers you have taken care of. But go back and remember what it was like at the beginning and what you used to be like at the beginning, why are you doing the things that you were doing? Are you still doing them for the same reasons? Are you doing the good works because you want people to see your good works? Are you getting rid of the false teachers because you're concerned about truth, or are you just interested in being right? So he says to remember from where you came from, and you need to change, you need to repent, you need to go back to the way that you were. In fact, he goes on and says, and do the first works. In other words, they were working, but he wants them to work the way they were at the beginning. And it has something to do, of course, with their love. It must be pretty serious as far as Jesus is concerned. And having our hearts in the right place must be pretty uh, necessary as far as Jesus is concerned because he gives them a pretty big ultimatum. He says, I will come unto thee. He says, you need to do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place except thou repent. And what is he saying when he says I'm going to remove your candlestick or most translations lampstand? Yeah, the lampstand was the church. It, would, it may still exist there, but guess what? It would cease to be Christ's church. Because remember how we talked about earlier how that the lampstand, the way the lampstand works is it reflects the light of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus is basically saying, you're a burned out light bulb. I need to take you out. Because you're not doing what, I, what 
the church is supposed to do. Which, when you read this, this is almost amazing because of the things that he says that's good about them. But if they don't have their love right, they're going to cease to be the church of Christ any longer. And that can happen. A church can call itself a church, but it's not a church unless Jesus calls it his church. Any questions or comments? Yes. Well, I agree um, that all churches have those who are doing what's right and some who, who are not. Uh, I think it was last Sunday that we talked about how that, um, I mean, last Wednesday we were talking about how that um, a lot of times preachers change churches because I think if they go to a different church, it'll be different somehow or another. But you have the same people with the same attitudes and the same problems in every church. Um, it's interesting. When I was preaching in Cleveland, Tennessee, we were, I was preaching for a congregation of around 600 members. But you know what? Every single quarter, guess what we had to do? Same thing we do here. We have to struggle, to struggle to find somebody to teach a Bible class. It's the same thing, regardless of the size of the church. And um, so you had some people here, perhaps, that were resting on their laurels and do other things. And it's just um, every church has its problems. Uh, Jesus says the most important thing here is you need to return back to your first love. But then after saying that, he goes on and, and brings up something else that to show, I guess in a way, John is, and Jesus is showing us, well, he's not discounting love in the place of doing what's right either. Uh, we live in a religious world today that puts all the emphasis on love and then nothing else matters. Uh, as long as we get our love right, then it doesn't matter if we do anything right. Well, Jesus, what's Jesus saying in the very next verse? Verse 6, he says, But this thou hast, even though you've left your first love, this is something you're doing right. This is something I will give you credit for. That thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, first of all, we see there it's okay to hate something. But secondly, notice what he said they hated. Did they hate the people? Who did, what did they hate? The deeds. They hated the sin. They didn't hate the sinner. And so Jesus points that out. But I guess the next question we need to ask is, who are the Nicolaitans? And why did Jesus and church there at Ephesus hate them? Anybody know anything about the Nicolaitans? Okay. That's one of the things that they did. Um, the Nicolaitans were, they get their name, from Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, where there was a deacon there by the name of Nicholas. You remember the original deacons that were appointed, if they were deacons, there uh, in the church in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not Nicholas later became an apostate and started teaching false doctrine, and that's why they called themselves the Nicolaitans. Or if they just decided, well, here's somebody we can attach our name to, and we're just going to start calling ourselves after him to give ourselves some uh, credit, if you will. Uh, we don't know for sure, but they were calling themselves disciples of Nicholas, the Nicolaitans. And they were an early Gnostic group, an uh, early group that um, engaged in all kinds of things on the premise of the idea that, once again, that the flesh is totally bankrupt and the spirit is totally good, and therefore you can't do, the two can't mix together. And so they just kind of threw everything out the door and said, well, we can't do anything about it anyway. We might as well just live any way we want to. 
And um, that, of course, is something that Jesus hated and something that the church at Ephesus hated. And once again, I don't know if this is here for this reason, but it almost sounds like you need to get your love right, but that doesn't excuse you from not getting the other things right just because you have love. And love is the basis for everything that we do, but love is not the thing that encompasses uh, and excuses everything that we do. And then he goes on, of course, in verse 7, and I think this is very important. He does this with all the churches. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What is he saying when he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear? What is he wanting us to think about? Everyone. Everyone has ears. So that would apply to us, but most certainly it would apply to those in the church at Ephesus. What is a very common practice in a church when it comes to somebody saying, this is something we need to do or something that needs to be corrected? All right, goes right over the heads. In one ear and out the other. Okay. Uh, see if I can take you down a little path. Um. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you have left your first love. Who did that apply to? <laughs> there you go. There you go. A lot of times in churches what happens is um, it's somebody else's responsibility. It's somebody else's problem. It's something that they did I didn't do. Uh, sometimes we hear people talk about what the church is doing as opposed to what we are doing. Uh, the point, of course, that Jesus is making here, and as he does with every one of these letters, he's writing to the messenger of the church and the church as a whole, but he needs to under, we need to understand, both there in that congregation and our congregation, we have our own personal responsibility. Each person in that church had their own personal responsibility to, to remember and to repent and to do the first works. Uh, so many times... There, the, People in churches always want somebody else to do the thing that needs to be done. It's always somebody else's responsibility. But Jesus makes it very clear here that this involves everybody. Well, I kind of rushed through that because I'm trying to get out of the church of Ephesus and go visit another church. Any questions or comments? Yes, Fred. <clears throat> oh, yeah, and I apologize. I, I stopped where I shouldn't have stopped yet. And thank you, Michael, for bringing it up. I was ready to move to another town. I wasn't ready to leave this town. Yeah, the very, after he said that he has an ear to hear, let him hear, he says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And, of course, the tree of life is symbolism for what? Eternity. But the symbolism in our mind, what do we picture? The Garden of Eden. And as long as Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, they had eternity. And, of course, because of the... Uh, man sinned, they were knocked out of the Garden of Eden, and they uh, were kept away from the tree of life. So this is symbolism for eternity or eternal life. And, of course, uh, John uses the word paradise, which is a Persian word for beautiful garden. That's where that word comes from, beautiful garden. So once again, we've got a picture of Eden. And so basically Jesus says if you'll overcome and do the things he wants them to do as far as this church is concerned, then you'll be able to go back to the Garden of Eden or go back to the way things were before the fall of man. Sorry about missing that last part of that verse here. I got ahead of myself, I guess because uh, I want to get to Smyrna because Smyrna is a, a place we want to talk about because it's an amazing church. 
Oh, it's an amazing church. I can't imagine being a member of this church. Uh, in fact, I bet some of us don't want to be members of this church, even though we should want to. Are any other questions or comments about Ephesus? I'm sorry about leaving off that last little bit there. All right, let's talk about Smyrna for a moment. Um, perhaps the reason why Smyrna is picked next, because um, of all the churches, this is the second one that was probably well-known. Uh, the reason being we think it's pretty well-known because a lot of the early church fathers wrote about the church at Smyrna. Also, the city itself was a very famous city. In fact, um, if you go back and look at, do some research on this particular city, you discover that it was called the crown city of Asia. And remember, when we talk about Asia, we're not talking about what we think about Asia today. We're talking about uh, that part of the world where Turkey and, and, and Greece and all those places are. That was known as Asia during uh, this time of, the, of history. But it was known as the crown city of Asia. And the reason was um, it had a big, beautiful harbor. And this big, beautiful harbor opened up to this nice, flat, plain um, that had one of the most beautiful cities the world had ever seen. And then it went to a little bit of short, uh, uh, little short foothills, and then you had the mountains or the hills above it that were dotted with all kinds of ornamental buildings and towers and whatnot that it almost looked like if you started at the harbor and that was the foot, the plains were the body, and the mountains were the head, it looked like there was a crown over the city because of the skyline. And so it was called the crown city of Asia. It's also known as the flower of Asia. And the reason for that is it was such a beautiful city. It was a city that basically was torn down and rebuilt again. And when it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt with plan and structure. Um, must have had a real good city planner and laid out a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, it was a city that had all kinds of different kinds of temples in it. But the thing that needs to be understood is there was one temple there that was the very first temple that was ever built for this particular reason. And that particular temple was a temple to the emperor. In 23 B.C., the very first temp temple that was built for emperor worship was built there for Tiberius Caesar. In fact, in this particular temple, there was developed a priesthood of Caesar worship, if you will, where they had all kinds of rites and rituals. And so most people believe that this was perhaps the hotbed, the beginning place, and the force behind emperor worship in the entire world. So think about that for a moment. You are living in the town where emperor worship all began, and it was a driving force about behind emperor worship. You're living there and you're a Christian. Probably not a good place for you to live, much less be a Christian and have a church there. Also in Smyrna, there was a very large Jewish population. Um, don't remember the exact number of how many were living there, but uh, had many, many people who were Jewish that were living in this particular town. Um, the church at, I mean, the city of Ephesus, as we talked about last week, no longer exists like it does now, but this particular city still exists. Um, it's in Turkey. It's called Izmir. Uh, when the time it was called Smyrna, it had about 200,000 people living in it. Now it has 2 million people living in it. 
and the uh, town is still laid out the way it was with the harbor and with the plains and then with the mountains in the back with the towers and everything. They're still up there. Um, it was known as a very cool place to live. And why do you think it was called a cool place to live? Because that was a real hot, hot part of the world. But those ocean breezes would come in, so they had their own natural air conditioning. So it was a very cool place to live, so it was a very popular place to live, and therefore it would drive up housing prices and everything. It's interesting, if you go on a tour, I've never done this, but I've been told by other preachers, if you go on a tour of the seven churches of Asia, this is where they always begin because that's the starting point because there's a city with hotels and a place with an airport and where the harbor and then people will go from there and they go visit the other places, which are mostly ruins now, but this place is still here. As far as ruins, they've uncovered different things in the past, but what's most interesting is they, they have cover, uncovered, uh, as far as archaeological digs, the marketplace that existed during the same time that this is written. And the, on the ruins in the marketplace, even to this day, you can go there, and there is a bronze plaque, a large bronze plaque, that's on one of the walls of those excavated uh, marketplace ruins, and it has this scripture that we have right here. Here, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse uh, 8 and going down through verse 11. That is on a bronze plaque there in uh, Ismar. Now, what's interesting about that, this is a predominantly Muslim city. But yet, historically, they have allowed that to stay there to represent the fact that this was the old city of Smyrna. That's now known as Ismar. Um, any questions or comments about the city itself? We'll make sure we got a flavor for the city itself. Still a very beautiful, beautiful place, I'm told. It's I-Z-M-I-R. You're welcome. I-Z-M-I-R. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. That sounds like that's right. Okay. Yeah, you can look it up. It's in Turkey. I was hoping Mike would Mike Fields would be here tonight. I don't know if he'd been to, to Ismar or not. Um, <clears throat> so that's the city that we're dealing with. And so this is what John and Jesus says to them. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. And once again, uh, other than this text right here, we don't have any information about ch the church at Smyrna. We can't go back and look at their preachers, can't go back and look, say how it's established. Don't know anything about it other than what we've got right here, Okay. He says, unto the church in Smyrna write, These things uh, saith the first and the last, which was dead and which was alive. Now, as is the case in each one of these letters, uh, he's going to follow the same pattern. He begins with a description of Jesus that he takes from the first chapter. And here's, once again, one of those descriptions. He's going to give a condemnation. I mean, a condom. I might always have a hard time. He's going to praise them, okay? Yeah. But here at this particular church, he's not going to say anything bad about them at all. Here's where the pattern's broken. He does this with this church, and he does it with the church at Philadelphia. Um, but anyway, nothing's wrong here. But notice what he says first of all when he, just says he, when he describes himself. He says, I am the first and the last. I was dead, but I'm alive. Now, why do you think that's the moniker he picked for himself for this church? All right, high Jewish population, and what would that mean? What would that have to do with anything? All right, do what? All right, might be a lot of Sadducees. They believe in the resurrection, and, of course, they were the ones that put him to death. 
And they didn't believe he rose from the dead, but Jesus says, yes, I did rise from the dead. Michael, what do you want to say? Let's put all that together and say this. What did I say was the main thing that was going on in this town? I didn't say persecution, but that's what I was talking about. Because of the fact that that was where the headquarters of the emperor worship was. And so there was some heavy, heavy persecution going on. In fact, there were people being put to death. We have historical records of people being put to death in the, in the city of Smyrna for their faith. Or if you're being put to death or you know there's a possibility you're going to be put to death, wouldn't it be important to you at the very beginning of this letter, Jesus saying, hey, I used to be dead, but I'm not anymore. They persecuted me and put me on a cross. They killed me. I was dead. They even put a spear in my side to prove I was dead. But I rose again on the third day and I'm still alive. So he wants to start there before he says anything else. And that's a very fitting uh, description of Jesus for this town, this church. And notice what he says. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blaspheming of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are, the, are of the synagogue of Satan. All right, let's break this verse down. He first of all knows their works. This was a church that in spite of everything that was going on, they were involved in works. Um, maybe it was the work of being faithful. Maybe it was the work of helping each other. As we're going to see, they needed to help each other. Maybe doing other things, but they were involved in a working church. And I think that's important to, real, to understand that regardless of your situation, they have a terrible situation here we're going to discover. They were involved in a terrible situation. This church had, a, had terrible problems. Jesus still expected them to be doing something. That doesn't give you the excuse to close up shop and say, that's the end of it. Can't go on. Got to keep working. He knows their works, but the second thing he knows is their tribulation. We talked about this at the very beginning of the class, this word tribulation, when it translated from the Greek is the idea of being smashed down and squeezed out. In other words, it's like um, you've ever pulled up beside a road crew paving a road and you see those big rollers that come along. Um, this is what you put in, our, put in their minds probably millstones, but it puts in our minds these big heavy rollers. Jesus is painting a picture of a Christian line there and Rome and the Jewish population is rolling right over and they're squashing them flat and squeezing them out. This is not just some persecution. This is tribulation. They're being having to deal with a terrible, terrible time because of what they are. And to go on and prove how terrible things have gotten, he says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. The word poverty here is not the fact the church there was poor. The word poverty here means destitute. They had nothing. So the question needs to be asked, why did they have nothing? Why was this a church that was destitute? Well, if you go back and do a study of emperor worship, and what happens, and we're going to see some of this as we get further on in the book of Revelation. If a person wouldn't bow down to the emperor, he'd lose his job. He would lose his home. He maybe could not get another job. Sometimes they would, you'd have to be a, a for a better expression, a card-carrying emperor worship person to even go in a grocery store and buy anything. They were having everything taken away from them. They had nothing. Um, 
can you imagine uh, being a part of a church? Well, just put it this way. You start visiting a church and, and, and you hear the gospel and you're convinced of the fact that uh, you need to become a Christian and you're about ready to confess your faith in Christ and be baptized and the preacher tells you, well, you hope you understand and appreciate this fact that once you make this commitment, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything. How many of us are willing to do that? On the day we became Christians, you were told that if you're going to be a member of this church, because of the persecution we face here, because of the emperor worship here, and because of the way they treat us here, that once you become a Christian, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose everything. How many of us are willing to make that kind of commitment? But that's what Jesus is talking about when he commends this church that he knows what they have given up. They have given up everything. In fact, he makes here in a parathetical statement, he says, but thou art rich. Now, how were they rich? All right, spiritual blessings. They may have lost their family, but they still have the family of God. They may have lost their home, but they still have a home in heaven. They may have lost everything on this earth, but they've gained everything in eternity. Jesus told us not to be concerned about riches here on this earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves can break in and steal. But we need to put our heart in eternity. We need to put our riches in eternity. And then he goes on and says something else that they're having to deal with. And I know the blaspheming of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are, are, but are of the synagogue of Satan. They were also being persecuted by the Jews here. And this is something the Jews did in cahoots with the Romans. They did this with Jesus, and they did this with Paul. We have records of this. What did the Jews do as far as the Roman government is concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned? How did they get Jesus crucified? They chose Barabbas, but Jesus himself, what did they say about him? They lied about him. They blasphemed him. Why did Paul finally end up in Rome to appeal before Caesar? What started that whole instigation of things? The Jews blaspheming him, saying that he was something that he's not. What's happening in this town? The Jews hate Christians so much, they're going to the Roman officials and saying... That guy over there, he's not an emperor worship. He's my neighbor, and I know he's a Christian, so I know he doesn't believe in emperor worship. You need to go arrest that man. He's a liar. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in all the gods we believe in. Go get him. Going into full time, they're kind of the same way. I saw Michael's hand first, and we'll go to Julie. Absolutely. And we talked about this at the beginning of the class. Call them cannibals. Call them being involved in sensuous relationships. Um, calling them immoral because they had love feasts. I mean, we could list go on and on and on. They would take what was going on and make it even worse to pile it on, as you said. Yes, Julie? Absolutely. Um, they wanted these people destroyed. And if the Roman government did pick, them on it, pick up on it, they made sure the Roman government did pick up on it for their own benefit because of their jealousy, because of their uh, way that they hated uh, Christians. And I think it's interesting, a very important point is made here. It says, I know the blaspheming of them which say they are Jews. Now, folks, that's a very important statement there. 
these people who are doing this, they say they are Jews. And then he goes on and says, no, they're not Jews. In fact, I would even call their synagogue the synagogue of Satan. They were Jews. They were Satanists, if you will. But what is the implication here? How can someone say they are a Jew but not be a Jew? Okay, they sure were. They sure were. Let me put it here this way. Is there any such thing anymore as a Jew? The only person who calls himself a Jew is someone who calls himself a Jew. There's no such thing as a Jew anymore. Once Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He did away with the law of Moses. There's no possible way you can be a Jew anymore. You can't go, you can't from a national, say you were from, you make some ties to Judah, the tribe of Judah. That's where the word Jew comes from, it's from the tribe of Judah. But what happened in 70 AD? Just a few years after this book was written, what happened? The temple was destroyed, all the records were destroyed, the priesthood was destroyed, the sacrifices ceased. There's no possible way you can find out if you were a Jew or even practice as the Jewish law told you to practice. And I'm not being critical or anti-Semitic, and, and I, my heart bleeds for those who were killed up in that synagogue up in Pittsburgh. But people who call themselves Jews today are just calling themselves Jews. There's no back way they can go back and even trace their lineage and find out what tribe they were from. There may be some traditions in the household, but there's no records whatsoever. They can't, the reason why they have synagogues is because they no longer have a temple. They no longer have um, sacrifices. They still practice Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, but they don't have a sacrifice where the high priest goes into the holies of holies and sprinkles blood upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and thus giving forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. They hadn't had that happen since 70 A.D. You know, sometimes preachers say, well, the way the Jews were forgiven, that their sins were rolled over from year to year, which I don't like that statement. But that sin hadn't been rolled over in a long time. The only way a person can be saved today is through Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a Jew as far as God is concerned. And so what does Jesus say? They say they're Jews. But God's people are not Jews anymore. God's people are Christ's people. And it's interesting how some of our premillennial friends will put so much emphasis upon the Jews and restoring the, the kingdom and glory to the Jewish people. Well, that makes no sense whatsoever. Judaism in 70 AD was obliterated. It no longer exists. But it really happened in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to, to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Boom. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the end of Judaism. It ceased to exist. Julie, do you want to say something? Or was it Michael? I could remember somebody's hand was up. <laughs> Let me read for you real quick. I know they're ready to come in. We're out of time. But a, but a historian by the name of Eusebius was talking about the church at Smyrna. And the persecution, the historical writer who lived during this time period said, those standing around talking about the Christians were struck with amazement, at, or people watching the Christians were struck at amazement at seeing them lacerated with scourges to their very blood and arteries, so now that the flesh concealed in, every, in the very inmost parts of their body was exposed to view. 
Then they were laid upon conch shells from the sea and on sharp heads and points of spears on the ground, and after passing through every kind of punishment and torture, were at last thrown to, as food to wild beasts. That's a historian's description of the persecution there in Smyrna. But we'll talk more about that next week because we've run out of time. 